Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I am delighted to have Todd Camp as my guest. Todd is the son of Jim Camp, who is the first person's work that I read about negotiating that wasn't full of shit. So, Todd, quick introduction from you. And who are you and what do you do? Yeah, thanks, Marcus. Thanks for having me. I've, I've been working on coaching negotiations for about 19 years now. Today, I focus primarily on venture-backed startups. I have a partner here in the Bay Area that uh, he calls himself a recovering VC, <laughs> who's very uh, skilled and good with uh, the camp system of negotiation. Unbeknownst to me, he was using it for many, many years prior to us meeting. So over the last five and a half years, he and I have worked with over close to 40 startups and you know, we typically are brought on and report to the CEO. And from there, we work with other co-founders, executive team members, really anyone the CEO wants us to work with who has an important negotiation or is managing a very important relationship for their company. We dive in and help them. You know, I got this opportunity, quite frankly, because my father, Jim, was the author of Start With No. Brilliant book. If you haven't got it, get it. Is it still in print? Yes, it is. Excellent. Definitely get it. It's the best negotiation book you will ever read. Yes, yes. Thank you for that. He actually started recruiting me to come work for him while he was writing that book right before it came out. So I was fortunate. I, I got to learn from one of the best uh, coaches I've ever seen in my life, and he happened to be my dad. So it was interesting. I started out with him primarily as a salesperson because he was getting a lot of inbound leads from people who have read the book and wanted more. At the time, he was doing quite a bit of training, but it was interesting to me because he always wanted to be known more as a coach, you know, someone who uh, takes responsibility for what they teach and really rolls up their sleeves, gets in the trenches with his clients. And that's kind of our, our model and has been, and I think will be moving forward. Derek and I, my partner here, we work with these startups and, and quite frankly, we're on the phone with them several times a week. You know, we get emails from them. We also have, well, before COVID-19, we had kind of a, a normal, you know, sequence of meetings where we go in and, and meet face to face with the teams we're working with. So we wanted to make it very clear that people, when they have a, a important negotiation that's critical to them or, or their company, they bring it to us hopefully at the very beginning. And then each turn, each event, each negotiation that occurs, we usually help them prepare and debrief and make sure they're identifying the right agenda, identifying the right things to say, what questions to ask, and also most importantly, what decisions they're either going to provide the other party clarity with that we've made or what decisions we're going to be asking the other party to reject or embrace. We're coaches in the trenches. It's kind of an on-demand style business, and uh, it's very rewarding and, and exciting. Very similar to the way we approach it. And I know that Jim was trained by David Sandler. One of the things I particularly loved about starting with No is that it's so compatible with what we do. The whole philosophy of upfront contracting, going for the No, and uh, no unilateral concessions, you know, all of that. It's beautifully integrated. So if you are from a Sandler background, Starting With No is a magnificent book and absolutely in line with what we teach. 
And the way Todd delivers the coaching feels very familiar as well, because that's exactly what I do with my clients around the sale. So fa- fabulous. Tim, tell me something. What is negotiation and what isn't it? Let's start with that. Great question. So that's typically the question I ask really anywhere in the world when I do a, a training session. I don't do many of them. I typically do them with clients, people who are signing up to be coaching clients. That's who we primarily do our workshops for. But that's that's usually one of my first questions. And, you know, it's interesting. It doesn't really matter what continent I'm on or what country I'm in. But I ask the question, what is negotiation? And what do you think I get? I get things. Spilling your guts, giving stuff away, basically spiraling down to some form of giveaway. Yeah, yeah. I hear uh, win-win, give and take, you know, compromise as little as possible. Occasionally I'll hear um, get the deal that my CEO wants, you know, by using power and leverage. I'll hear make the pie bigger. And what's interesting to me, I think our finest business schools, at least here in the United States, have confused the definition of negotiation with collective bargaining after the Railway Labor Act here, where, you know, people now believe you have to bargain in good faith. That's required in any negotiation. And so when you go up against the alpha bullying type uh, person who's contentious and you come with a win-win mindset that you think it's required to give things up, That's usually when you get fleeced and taken advantage of quite often. So we believe negotiation, we we don't think compromise is required. You know, if we asked ourselves what is required in order for a negotiation to take place. In fact, my my partner, Derek, that I work with from uh, being a VC, he asked me in our very first meeting, you know, I want to ask you something. It's It's not good enough to be correct to you know, be correct in something, to have a thesis and be correct. Usually, if you really want to have longevity and be as, as successful as possible, not only you have to be correct, but you have to be contrarian. And I, th- I think that comes from Peter Thiel, if I'm not mistaken. But he asked me, what would I know to be true about negotiation that 99% of the population wouldn't agree with? And I immediately said, well, that's simple compromise is not required. Most people don't realize that. Now, it may happen. You may make the decision after the other party has had a chance to reject what, you, what you're asking for, you know, multiple times. And if that's the case, then, you know, at that point, I believe it might be a good business decision. You also have the right to fade away and, and not do business with that party at the current time. So, Compromise isn't required. We believe negotiation is an effort to bring about an agreement between two or more parties with all parties having the right to veto. So the right to veto, the right to reject, the right to disagree. We believe there's a lot of hidden nuances in that right. But if you think about it, you know, when when someone says no to you, what are they really doing? They're making one decision. At one point in time, they're making one decision. And so we believe that's a good starting point. That's when we actually believe negotiations begin is when people reject or when you decline or when you say, I'm sorry, I can't agree to that, is both parties have the right to veto. A lot of salespeople that I see, you know, who are out there negotiating, especially if they're going up against the other party who seems to have all the resources in the world, all the power, all the leverage, a lot of times those folks forget they have the right to veto. 
you know, they're asked for concessions. They're asked for, to compromise things. And, uh, they don't know how to say no. They're afraid of it. And so that's one of the things we do is help people get comfortable with being uncomfortable and rejecting what the other party's asking for. So that's kind of a long-winded answer for you. Todd, tell me something. What are the four most common questions that you're asked about negotiation by founders? That's a good question. I, I'm not sure I have four that are asked every single time, but I do see four problems every single time with the people. Okay, I, let's run with that. First of all, everybody's looking for a silver bullet, a quick, easy fix, right? They think there's some easy way to sidestep, you know, digging in and changing their behavior and their habits. We're all creatures of habits. And when you, when you form bad habits, it can be very detrimental to your long-term success. So the first thing I see is people want a quick fix. And so they ask questions and that's really what they're looking for. And the reality is there is no silver bullet. And what's the real problem with that? So the real problem is they don't have, number one, they don't have the right mindset as to what negotiation is. You know, we just talked about the definition and, you know, how widespread the belief that compromise is required and that you're going to have to give things up. So that's a detrimental mindset. They don't have a process, right? They don't have a system. They wing it. Yeah, they wing it. They shoot from the hip. They don't have a disciplined process of, okay, I have one of the most important conversations coming up in my life. How am I going to prepare for that meeting? How am I going to prepare for that call? What are the criteria? What do I need to be thinking about? Right? They don't have that, that systematic approach. And so that's, that's the problem I see. Another issue is they don't have the, the correct behaviors. And what I mean by that is what questions to ask, what to say, what not to say, and how do you say it? You know, what are the behaviors? What, what are the most effective types of questions? I mean, I'm sure you see it all the time, Marcus. When I ask for clients to show me some of their emails, forward me emails, because a lot of negotiations today take place over email, and I expect that to continue with everything going on. But when I ask clients to send me emails, and I look at the emails that they have written, and I look at uh, specifically the ending, you know, I'll see a statement or a verb-led question that's very high risk, or a statement of, looking forward to your thoughts or anxious to hearing back from you. Instead of asking for an action item or asking a difficult question, they do a lot of damage and they don't realize it. So there's very effective behaviors. You know, you mentioned earlier today, there's a book written by a guy named Chris Voss, Never Split the Difference. The behaviors in that book are, are outstanding and really in line with what we teach as well. And, and I know a lot of them with what you teach, Marcus. So what to say and how to say it is, is another area I see people are really struggling with. Excellent. So tell me this. What are the three questions that people should be asking, but they don't? Three questions people ask, but they don't. Well, they should be asking themselves, how do I, we all know how important negotiations are with our own interests, right? But how do I keep what's important to me and my feeling of need at bay and solely get into the world of the other party? How can I forget about everything that's important to me in this conversation and just focus on what's important to the other party? What challenges are they trying to solve for? 
what opportunities are they trying to secure? How is my product or service going to help them secure those opportunities? How am I going to help them see that? What is it I need them to see today that they don't? That's probably the biggest thing. So, so often when I ask people, uh, we have something called mission and purpose, right? Where mission and purpose is essentially what is it we're going to provide the other party and how are we going to provide that? And that's something we strive to identify early and often with the respected other party to make sure we have it very clear and confirmed that we know exactly what it is they want us to provide them and how they expect us to uh, deliver that. A lot of times when, even if people have read our book or you know they said they have studied our stuff, I'll ask them, you know, what's, okay, so what's your mission and purpose for this next meeting? And I'll get something back that's in our world to our benefit. You know, I want to get this deal done and, and it's got to come in at $10 million to satisfy my investors. Otherwise, I'm not going to be able to agree to it. That's not a valid mission and purpose. That's in our world to our benefit. What are we trying to deliver the other party and how are we trying to deliver it? So that's one big issue right there. Another question I would say is they should be asking, when do I make a proposal? You know, the other party is demanding to know what's our pricing, what are our terms? If it's not a sales negotiation, they're demanding to know, you know, what we're willing to do to get the agreement done. What are the must-haves, you know, from our side? You know, those things, there is a time and place to present exactly what you want and what you're asking for, but it's not just because the other party's asking for them and demanding them. If you fall into that trap of delivering your proposal too quickly, you're doing a lot of damage and most likely going to lose out to the competition who's more disciplined and has a, a system where they, they actually build out the decision-making team. They take the time to create vision of what can be accomplished with each decision-maker, no, no matter how long or hard that takes. They know how to ask the difficult questions and they know how to ask for a decision. Those folks are hard to find without you know prior training or working with a few amount of uh, service negotiation service providers in the world, unless they've done that, they typically have bad habits and they try to close too quickly and, you know, give away the farm uh, early and oft often. So those are two things, you know, a lot of times I think uh, it's kind of on the same note in the negotiations I see with startups, usually it's with a startup who feels slightly vulnerable going up against the Samsungs or, or Apples of the world who appear to have all the power and leverage, all the resources, uh, all the money. So they feel like they're in a position of vulnerability. The other party has all the power and leverage. So therefore, they're fearful or they take themselves hostage with regards to what it is they can ask for or what it is they should want from this other party. And a lot of times, I think our clients could actually get more than what they're willing to ask for. So sometimes when we think about what it is we want, you know, we'll ask our clients quite a bit, what is it you want from this deal? And frequently they don't know, or they have an idea, but they're not quite sure. And a lot of times, if you just manage each negotiation, one step, one conversation at a time, you're going to find things and learn things that quite frankly, when you bring them back, to your team or, or to your coaches, we're going to uncover that the opportunity for you in this deal is much larger than you anticipated. So don't 
don't take yourself hostage before you've you've really had a lot of important conversations thinking that you know what you want. What you've described there are a couple of things. First of all, salespeople have a tendency to be a bit like a 14-year-old behind the bike sheds on a fumble. They're in too much of a hurry and they need to slow down to speed up. Another key thing is to recognize that you wouldn't be in front of the Samsungs or the Apples unless they thought that there was some value in it. And don't give away your power. Don't rush. Don't give away your power. And recognize that the moment you stop perceiving yourself as having equal business stature with the other side, then what you end up doing is creating a parent-child kind of dynamic. And you never want to be going into a negotiation or a sale with a parent-child dynamic. It's got to start and end adult to adult. Now, Todd's made the point that you need to, first of all, focus about getting inside the mind of your prospect and understand what it is they want to achieve. Same thing in the sale. If you don't start with the prospect or the customer, then you'll be selling and negotiating selfishly, and they will pick up on that, and their alarm bells will go off. Next thing is make sure that you are systematic. Have a structure. Do not wing it. Todd's point is that you need to plan. You have to have a system. You need to rehearse, and you need to pick off each of the individual parties one by one and make sure that you understand what's in it for them and why they will support what you're eventually going to propose. And if you can't find that fit, and there isn't a good fit for both of you, then chances are this isn't going to work. Because if it doesn't work for them, they're not going to go ahead. And if it's not right for you, what on earth are you doing pursuing it? I think people don't understand the value, what win-win actually means. It needs to work for both sides. It doesn't necessarily mean that both sides get exactly what they want, but it's what both sides need. And I think that what most people describe as win-win, that compromise, giving stuff away unilaterally, that is a bad win-win. And the win for you on the, in that context is you just giving stuff away to buy the business. And that's shitty selling. It's bad negotiating. So what sort of rules do you teach your clients around negotiating? Because I'm guessing you've got some fundamental rules that are guide rails that stop people from performing acts of idiocy and self-sabotage. Yeah, so let's, let's go back to, I mentioned mission and purpose, really important in our system. Great chapter in the book, start with no, on exactly what it means to us. But when you ask most people, what's a successful negotiation? Usually it's, well, we got everything we wanted or, you know, we gave up as little as possible to get the deal we wanted. Or you hear things like win-win, which, um, you know, to us, we don't hold too much stock in that, in that phrase just because, uh, you know, it's a result and we can't manage results. We can manage, you know, our decisions and behaviors, activities. So mission and purpose the way we think about what's a successful negotiation, well, that is uh, when we can deliver on our mission and purpose, meaning when we set out to, to accomplish, people tell us exactly what they want us to provide them and how they want us to provide it. That mission and purpose, if we're able to deliver on that, at the end of the day, that's, that's what we consider to be a successful negotiation. Now, there are things we're going to ask for, whether it's money or you know, different 
terms or conditions in the agreement, there are things we're going to get from our from our negotiation to be able to deliver on that mission and purpose. But if we can execute that and do provide exactly what we said we were going to deliver, that's pretty, in, in our opinion, that's a successful negotiation. And that's usually how long-term relationships get very strong and people do repeat business together. So that's one thing is, is knowing exactly what we're going to provide, how we're going to provide it, and being able to do so. When people ask us for concessions and we have a mission and purpose established, it's very easy for us to plant our feet and say, you know, I'm sorry, we're not going to be able to agree to that. If we did, we certainly wouldn't be able to deliver what you've already stated multiple times that, that you'd like us to, to do for you. So we're in a tough spot. We can't agree to that. Where do we go from here? So in sound, let's speak, this is contracting. This is creating mutual agreement along the way. And what you're doing is you're creating multiple agreements in order to ensure you have mutual purpose. Is that correct? That's right. And what you're doing is you're establishing clear boundaries. And by doing that, what you're doing is you're preventing ambiguity and mismatched expectations. I have the view that ambiguity is the mother of all foobars. If you want to see things fucked up beyond all recognition, the ambiguous, the lack clarity, ambiguity at the top also then creates politics at the bottom. And if you are trying to create a long-term relationship with a customer or a partner, you need to be absolutely open, transparent, upfront about what you're expecting, what works for you and what does not, and learn to plant your feet. I think too many salespeople have either no spine or a jelly spine. And sales and negotiating are full contact blood sports. They're not for wimps. They're for people who are willing to have difficult conversations and even to hear things that they don't want to hear, like no. And like Todd said, the real selling, the real negotiating happens after someone has said no to you. 80% of my income today comes from prospects who have said no to me. Now, if you learn how to sell past no or through no, then you don't have to prospect as much. You can actually go to, uh, to people in the full confidence that you're going to encourage the no early because the sooner you get the no, the sooner you can start getting down to brass tacks. Is that fair and reasonable? Yes, absolutely. And the ambiguity point is dead on. You know, we have clients who... Uh, they get uncomfortable when we, when we ask them to confirm we have our mission and purpose correct, which is essentially what we're going to provide and how we're going to provide it. When you've had enough conversations and you've asked enough questions, you should start to see exactly what the other party's pain or challenges or opportunities are that have you at the table with them. At that point, there is going to come a time where you want to recite exactly what it is you think your mission and purpose is and ask for clarity from the other party, you know, how accurate is this? We believe you'd like us to provide A, B, and C, and the way you'd like us to do that is by delivering X, Y, and Z. How accurate is that? What is missing? You want to get to a point where, and Chris says this, I love it in his book, you want to get to the point where you recite what it is you think your, your purpose is for the relationship and have the other party say, that's right. That's right. That's exactly 
Todd, that's exactly what we want you to provide us. And that's exactly how we want you to do that. So many customers are uh, hesitant or so many clients are hesitant. So many people are hesitant or afraid of doing that because they think it goes without saying, right? They say, well, listen, I just asked all the questions. The other party has told me, they gave me all the answers. Why do I need to recite it and confirm it? And so that's um, that's something that's uh, we try and work with our clients all the time to get them comfortable to even if it feels repetitive or goes without saying, if that's the case, you're safe to say it. You're safe to ask the question. One of the fundamental rules in Sandler, and I'm sure it is within the camp negotiating system, is never assume. No mind reading, ever. So you need to be absolutely sure. And there's a really good psychological reason for doing it as well. People want to be heard, feel felt, and be understood. And they need to know that you understand them. And more importantly, you need to know that what you understand is what they understand. And there is no daylight between you. If there is even a cigarette papers gap between the two of you, that will eventually lead to conflict that could have been avoided. And it's not constructive conflict, it's needless conflict. The other thing I think you're uh, touching on here, which is really important, is as a seller, as a negotiator, you need to be unattached. And the problem is that most people will have an attachment to the outcome. And that's where you start focusing on yourself instead of the other party. And the moment you are attached, you are moving yourself into what we would describe as the drama triangle. The drama triangle, the three points on it, describe the victim voice, the persecutor, and the rescuer. And you never want to take any one of those positions because ego thrives on drama. If you're the victim, why me, poor me, this is so unfair, this always happens, and save me, or you're selling to a a prospect who's taking the victim position, the temptation is to take one of the other two positions. If you're a persecutor, you try and take advantage of them, and that defeats the mission and purpose, because that is not uh, what they want. And if you're rescuing, you're helping without boundaries or permission, and then you start to make unilateral concessions or you get run ragged because you end up micromanaging because you haven't established boundaries, then you start feeling resentful and then you move into the victim position. So there is a really good psychological reason for doing it, but also from a behavioral perspective, it's crucial that you know exactly where you are headed and that if there is any doubt, you clarify. No one, in my experience, I've been selling 34 years And no one has ever given me grief for confirming what they have told me and making sure it's to their 100% satisfaction that I understand what they have told me and what they want. Is that your experience too? Yes, absolutely. It's, I think it's for, for people who have never done it before, it feels a tad off or awkward to, to them until they see how effective it is and it works. And then it becomes one of their greatest tools, right? You know, another thing about another rule in our system, we have a list that we kind of prosecute. Anytime we get a no, we think about, okay, what's happening in this negotiation? How is it the other party is able to say no to us? We have kind of narrowed down four reasons why people can reject what we're asking them to agree to. And so if we think about that, when our clients come back to us and say, well, they've said no. We say, okay, well, which of these four things is happening? First is 
they don't see the emotional vision of benefit associated with the yes. They don't see the vision. They don't see emotionally what happens to them or what happens to their company if they were to say yes to this, right? So if that's the problem, that's usually on us. We failed to create the right vision of benefit in their world. We didn't do a good job of helping them see that. So we ask, okay, is that, the, is that what's going on here? Is that why they're able to say no? The second reason is they don't have the data to support the emotional vision. They may see the emotional vision of, wow, if your technology could really do this, you know, it'd be amazing. Show me some data, show me some use cases. How have others used it? If you can't provide that, sometimes it's pretty easy for people to say, you know what, come back to us once you've had some success and proven this thing out. So emotional vision of benefit, lack of data to support the emotional vision of benefit. Third is they lack the authority. All they can say is no and maybe. They can't even say yes, right? We see this all the time. Folks who pretend to have the decision-making capabilities, really they report to a committee or they have layers above them that actually have to sign off on it, despite them pretending to have the authority. So do they see the emotional vision of benefit? Do they have the data? Are we talking to the right people? Do they really have the authority? Fourth, and my favorite is if the answer is yes, they have the emotional vision of benefit, they have the data, we know they're the CEO. The fourth is they're using no as a tactic to try and drive concession. They're bluffing, right? So we kind of prosecute that list, identify which, which combination or which one of those four is occurring. And then we think about, okay, what's the next agenda? What's our next script? That's going to keep us very, very safe and put the real problem on the table. How do we do that? And so when someone's bluffing, there's a couple ways you can, you can call the bluff, but that's actually, you know, very scary for people because that involves either accepting their decision. You know, a lot of times people will say, listen, if if you're not going to come down 30%, if you don't sharpen your pencil, then we're, you know, we're going to have to go, we're going to go with your competition. There's probably not much else to talk about. When someone says something like that to you, it can be very, uh, you know, you've got to have a stomach to be able to respond in a way that says, listen, that's very disappointing. We have put our best foot forward. If we can ever help you in the future, I hope you'll let us know. That's a scary thing to do for a lot of people. But if you prosecute the list and you know it's a bluff or you have a very good suspicion that they are bluffing. That's one way to do it. Another way to do it would be to say, you know, I'm curious to understand. And this is actually, this is a, uh, an example. We had a client, they were starting an enterprise sales group. They were meeting with a consulting, a very large consulting firm, VP of procurement. And they actually did this to our client. They said, listen, they were negotiating at, at this time with the business committee, the two champions told my client that we've made the decision as a committee, our preference is to work with you. Now we're going to turn you over to uh, procurement and legal, and we'd like for you to work with them. (laughs) So they get an email from the procurement vice president says, listen, before we meet next week and, and start working on the contract, you're going to have to sharpen your pencil. We have two competing bids, and you're 30 points higher than the other two. So you've got to do better. And so our response was pretty simple. We know they saw the vision of benefit. 
the two champions in the committee who are going to be personally responsible for the success or failure of the program, the project, confirm that. We know the committee really has the authority, or so we think. To us, when we got this email from the procurement person, we thought, okay, it's either an authority issue or a tactic of bluffing. Everybody makes a brash statement. You got to do better. You got to do better. How often does that happen when people have already made the decision to work with you? Quite a bit, right? The decision's already been made and they're making statements like that because we all want a better price, don't we? I mean, everyone wants a better deal. Well, that's procurement's job. Procurement, but get paid on squeezing suppliers. And their first response is a flinch. And weak salespeople capitulate because they have a mistaken belief that it's about the money. In a real selling situation, it's never about the money. In a real negotiation, it's never about the money. They have a problem that they need to have solved. And if you've done your job right and you've uncovered their pain uh, by individual committee member, you've identified how much they are willing to invest in terms of commitment, resource, access, financials, and time. You've established the buying committee and you have all of those people on side. When it goes to procurement or legal, you know that you're going to get some bullshit flinch back. And your job is just to hold your nerve. So how did you, di- how did you get past that? So we coached our, our client to respond with essentially uh, three sentences. The first is a statement. Jane, we understand you have alternatives in this project, period. First question was, understanding we're 30% higher, the closest competitor, what is it about our company that still has us in the running? That's question number one. Second sentence, clarity would be very helpful for me and my leadership team. Comma, are you officially rejecting our proposal on behalf of Booz Allen Hamilton? (laughs) Very good. So interrogative question, what is it about us that has us still in the running? Second question, you'll notice it's a verb-led. Are you officially rejecting our proposal on behalf of your organization or on behalf of your CEO? If that procurement person, think about it real quick. If that procurement person comes back and says, yes, we are officially rejecting. I think you want to know that, right? Especially when you're in a startup, chasing a false positive is deadly. A qualified no is like saving a goal in soccer. If you manage to save a goal, then that's a win. What's bad about that? Yeah, exactly. The beautiful thing is on the original email, they had copied the two champions from the committee who we thought were the the real decision makers were on the email. So they were on our response, right? We love to put people into an internal negotiation all the time. Yeah, I'd I'd love to put, let's find out if this person has authority. We've got the two business champions. Let's ask some, some tough questions and see what kind of response we get. So because we had a question. No, that was it. Just what is it about us that still has us being considered? And then clarity would be helpful. Are you officially rejecting on behalf of your company? So we're, we're hoping for an internal negotiation. We're, we're hoping to expose this as a bluff. And we're also testing, does she have any authority? Because if she comes back and says, yes, we're officially rejecting, okay. Now we have an agenda 
to execute with the business champions. Let's go back to them and find out what's really going on here. So the negotiation continues. If she comes back and says, yes, we're officially rejecting your proposal. Okay, so there's one no. You still have the champions who are absolutely relying on, on a successful program, you know? So we're still in a good spot, no matter how she responds to that. But a lot of people see that question of, are you officially rejecting on behalf of your company? They see that as, whoa, that's too aggressive. That's too harsh. And every time we use it, it's highly effective. Always go for the no. Try and get your prospects to say no to you. Don't try and get them to say yes to you. If you can encourage the no's, when they then come back and Jane says, well, hang on a second, that's not quite what I meant, you're back in the running. If she says yes, you've got your road back to your champions. And if they then jump on her like a ton of bricks, that then neutralizes her as an opponent. So any gambits that she comes back with or any bluffs that she comes back with after that are automatically neutralized and weakened. Um, So that's a fantastic tactic. Tell me this. If you look at the mindset, let's wrap up on that. In terms of mindset, uh, what do you teach your clients around becoming mentally tough? And how do you prepare them to be mentally tough for a negotiation? You know, a lot of it is uh, confidence. Any human performance event, you know, riding a a bike at high speeds, flying an airplane, playing a sport, playing an instrument, repetitions and good coaching and feedback from people who understand the game or the environment you're operating in. Building confidence is how we help people who are uh, afraid of the no or afraid of asking difficult questions. We rehearse it with them. We practice it with them. A lot of times we'll actually write the script for them and give it to them. We'll go through it and talk through why we're asking, what question we're asking, to explain it to them from uh, you know, an intellectual and emotional position, just so they get comfortable with it. My clients are way smarter than I am, some of the smartest people in the world with unbelievable technology, but they're just, they've never done, they haven't had to negotiate in their life up to this point too often, or at least they didn't realize it. And so they're just looking for a better way. And so through repetition, coaching, practice, and executing and seeing the result, eventually they become more comfortable and they're not afraid. In fact, they, they look forward to asking the tough question. They look forward to, to confirming the mission and purpose. So to reiterate, I, I mean, I bang on about this to my clients all the time. You need to understand why you are there. You need to have a plan. You need to rehearse. And my rule of thumb is for every hour you're in front of a prospect, you rehearse and practice for three hours minimum. Then when you come out, you debrief and you debrief in writing and verbally and you capture the lessons and you use those lessons to feed your pre-call plan for the next interaction. And it's an iterative process and you are always learning. And the mistakes so many salespeople make is they wing it And then they don't capture any lessons, so they're cursed to repeat the same mistake time and time again. Yeah, that's right. You know, we had, um, (laughs) going back to that four reasons why people reject the bluff, we had a client who has some amazing technology that goes into a certain kind of device, and they're dealing with uh, an Asian group, very, very large uh, 
one of the largest manufacturers in the world for this technology. And they're working on a joint development agreement, right? Because they want to help our client really develop their technology and get it to the market. And what they kept saying is we're really interested in the secondary applications of this technology. Your primary application is never going to work. You're never going to be able to disrupt the billions of dollars that have been invested to build out the current device. You're never going to be able to disrupt that supply chain. So, but we are interested in the secondary applications. So that's why our joint development agreement, we're not going to give you the three million you're asking for. We're only going to give you one because we don't believe the primary will be a fit. And so what we did, we said, okay, let's think about four reasons why people reject. Do we really think they don't want this for um, the primary application? Why don't we accept their decision? and see what happens. Because we didn't believe that was the case, nor did, our, nor did our client. And it was a little bit scary at first, but what we did is we coached him to accept the decision. You know, we understand the primary application is not something you have much confidence in. Therefore, we accept your decision to get started on the JDA for the secondary application. And we'll just remove the primary application and find a different partner to work on that with. How <laughs> acceptable is that? <laughs> No, 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 you don't, no, 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 we want the prime, you know, we want the primary application to still be involved. We're just not willing to pay for it because it's not, it's most likely not going to work, right? (laughs) So again, that was a way to flush out a bluff was by accepting it. But these things are scary for people who have never done it. It's, it can be terrifying. I mean, they think about who they're negotiating, who some of their investors are. You talk about people who know how to drive up emotional concessions. A lot of the venture capitalists in this part of the world are pretty effective at negotiating using a style that's much different than the camp system. You know, it's based on fear and driving a uh, hard bargain. Yeah, a hard bargain and and creating a lot of fear in the founder or co-founder. People ask me all the time, can you negotiate with someone you don't trust? And I'm not saying our clients don't trust their investors, at least not all of them. And my, my comment is, yes, you can. I believe trust is something you actually build over time once you deliver what you say you're going to deliver. But decisions are what move negotiations forward. You know, being liked, being trusted are not nearly as important as being respected and effective. If the other party sees you as highly effective and they respect you and they respect your technology and they respect your decision-making capability – chances are they're going to end up trusting you and liking you long-term. So that's kind of the way we think about it is help our clients discover this. This isn't about being liked, right? You want to be liked. We understand human beings, you know, need that type of emotional love and support. But when you're in in a negotiation, that's not the place to get it. When you're in a negotiation, you want to be respected and effective. Todd, we're at the top of the hour. I'd love to talk further, and I'd love to talk again if we, if you're up for it. But a couple of questions. Who are you influenced by? Who are you reading, watching, listening to that you really rate as powerful content that's really worth uh, paying attention to at the moment? I'd say Daniel Kahneman. A lot of his stuff is great about how, dis- how we make decisions. My partner and I are constantly looking at, uh, there are a lot of really effective venture capitalists in this part of the world. So there's certain 
VCs we follow on Twitter and we read their blogs quite, quite often. We also pay a lot of attention to the markets and industries. Our clients are, you know, their technology is trying to impact and penetrate. So we'll read articles and find out as much as we can as, as far as industry trends and, and who they're negotiating with. You know, we'll do some searches on what the pain points are and what the opportunities of some of their respected other parties are trying to secure and think about what we can learn there before we engage in, in any particular negotiation. So it's really, you know, not too many books right now for me, but uh, a lot of, lot of stuff online just about the industry and, and the respected other parties that we're negotiating against. Any websites or titles that people should be reading? I'll tell you what, there's a, if you're a startup or, um, you know, just getting started, there's, there's a guy named Bill Gurley. Uh, I believe his blog is called Above the Crowd. He has awesome stuff nonstop. So if you had a golden ticket and you could go back and advise the idiot uh, Todd at age 23, how to avoid a life of misery and self-sabotage, what would you advise him to do? Go to the military and lose your ego. Um, no, I'm just kidding. We're celebrated to be so smart and know all the answers our entire life. You know, when you're 23, you're just getting out of college. You get your degree and you're celebrated for thinking you know everything there is to know about your specialty. And then you get, you know, you, then you get into uh, the working force and you get punched in the mouth and then you realize, oh, I don't know anything. So the second that happens, find a system, even if it's not our system, find a system, find a method, find a coach and dig in to build the right habits, right? Don't think your intellectual knowledge is enough because it's not. Uh, Absolutely. We are creatures of habit. And uh, if you develop the right habits, good habits, they will take you very far. If you keep reinforcing bad behaviors, uh, they will dig you into a nasty pit. So that's fantastic advice. Okay, final question then. What are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? Living in one house with three kids and my wife. <laughs> I'm actually enjoying this time. Pretty remarkable. Despite all the, you know, the terrible stuff that's going on. But inside these walls, I'm really enjoying my kids and my wife. What I'm struggling with right now, I guess, you know, as a coach, it's always you come across folks. I'm fortunate right now that all of my current clients are very coachable. They're open. They have a growth mindset. They want to learn. They want to dig in. It's hard to find those folks. You find a lot of, of, we get introduced to to new opportunities quite a bit. And so often it's frustrating because you have a very smart person with great technology. For whatever reason, they're not coachable. You know, they don't realize, maybe it's because they've never been coached before in their lifetime, but they're just not open to new ideas. They're not comfortable being uncomfortable. And so therefore you realize, well, it's probably not a good fit to work with us if you're not willing to give, you know, our, our stuff a try. I would say the percentage of people who are coachable on this planet is probably my challenge. Okay. There is a really good book that's well worth a read called Just Listen by Mark Goulston. And Mark describes a conversation there with an uncoachable prospect. And his strategy 
for taking him from not being coachable to coachable. Lovely little anecdote. And that's certainly worth exploring. And he, he specializes in teaching empathic listening, which again, I suspect in the negotiation arena is a, a skill that is woeful in most people. But I'm always puzzled why we don't teach listening. You know, we, do, we teach an awful lot of absorption of stuff in a transmission uh, from teacher to student, but we don't really teach listening. And I think that's a pitiful, sh- uh, shameful mistake. I think it should be taught in schools and it should also be taught as part of every job. Because if you learn to listen effectively, then you can get so much more done because actually you stop running this narrative. I think one of the other things that is uh, really worth uh, bearing in mind, another book by a guy called Shad Helmstetter. If you get the version that I had, he's got an 80s perm. But it's a really good introduction into the inner dialogue that's going on and paying attention to how and what's being said in your head so that you can get out of your own way. Because I have a view that your single biggest competitor is the six inches between your ears. You're suffering from fear, denial, apathy, and ego. And I've forgotten my fifth one. But ego is the one that gets you into the most trouble. And often that's that noise just chipping away the inherited voices, the things that you can't do, the prejudices, the biases, the uh, rules, no one from our family ever. Who am I to uh, negotiate with the CEO of, I don't know, LG Electronics when I'm just the owner of a poxy little startup in the Bay Area? Crazy stuff. So those two books, I think, for uh, people with that particular issue, maybe an interesting read for you. Todd, thank you so much. This has been incredibly insightful. I would love to do this again. How can people get hold of you? So you can go to our website, campnegotiationsystems.com. You can reach us there, or you can send me an email, tcamp at campnegotiations.com. Totally up to you. Or you can go find me on LinkedIn. Excellent. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please comment, like, share, and please subscribe. And also, if you think you would be a good guest or there's someone you would like me to interview for the podcast, please get in touch, put the two of us together, and let's see if we can get them on the podcast as a guest. So happy selling. And if you want to get in touch, mkauke at sandler.com. Thank you and stay safe. Bye-bye.